0: Vorponetwork.com This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by Noble Knight, where of Print is available again. And listeners like you, thanks for using The Tome's Amazon and D&D Classics affiliate links.
1: Hello, this is Eric Mingi, assistant lackey Brian
2: James, and you're listening to The Tome. Welcome to the Tome Show, a D&D news, reviews
0: and interviews show and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And I am Sam Dillon, filling in for your usual co-host Tracy Hurley, and in this episode that is number 232, we're going to get digital. And Jeff wants me to sing Let's Get Digital Let's and I'm not get singing.
2: Digital, digital. I want to get digital. Digital with PDFs. <laughs> Did I embarrass myself enough tonight?
0: Jeff hasn't had a lot of sleep this week.
2: <laughs> anyway, we're
0: on your iPad. Yeah. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> we are going to review a handful of recently released D and D PDFs that are available right now at your fingertips from dndclassics.com, which you can get to through
2: our link and help the show. Haha. Um, each of us has picked one PDF to share with you today. I will be discussing the third edition adventure, Eyes of the Lich Queen.
0: And Sam, what are you going to be reviewing for us? I will be reviewing the second edition adventure entitled Eye of Pain.
2: All right. Excellent. So uh, before you start thinking that that just means Sam and I are going to be talking about a couple of products, let's introduce our guest. First up is Jay Kent in his debut episode. Welcome to the show, sir. <sighs> Hello, thanks for having me on, Jeff. Such a
1: pleasure. Long time listener, first time guest host. Excellent. And what are you going to be reviewing with us today? I will be reviewing the Dungeon Module N1 Against the Cult of the Reptile God by Douglas Niles, an adventure for characters levels one through three. All right.
2: And also with us is someone who's new to the Tome Show, but hopefully not new to your ears. It's the host of my favorite new podcast on the internet, The Roundtable. It's James Interqueso! Hey, guys. Thanks for having
3: me on. I'll be reviewing I-6 Ravenloft. Before it was a campaign setting, it was a module in a first edition advanced
0: Dungeons & Dragons. Awesome. Alright, and there are the contenders. Before we hear what each of us has to offer, however, we should make sure to mention our awesome sponsor, Noble Knight Games. Our pick for this episode is the book that Jeff is actually reviewing, Eyes of the Lich Queen. It's a third edition D&D Eberron adventure. It's a hardbound book, and if you'd rather have a physical version rather than the PDF, then Noble Knight has it, even though it's been out of print for going on seven years now. You can find a link in the show notes at thetomeshow.com and be sure to tell them that The Tome Show sent you.
3: Hello!
2: Hello, citizens! Oh, thank goodness, adventurers!
3: We need a noble knight! Perhaps you can slay the beast of retail and reap the promises of riches. Riches? Yes! Great prices, out-of-print games, the latest releases, and a magic
2: box... That converts all of your old loot into cash or new loot. But why? Fantastic. I'll do it. Yes.
3: Well, you see, the beast, he kidnapped the mayor and can only be slain by
2: the most noble of knights. Yes, yes, yes. I said I'll do it. Yes, the thing is, I was talking to her. What?
0: Fear not, kind citizen. The noble knight will save the day, rescue the lord in distress, and liberate all that loot anyway only possible at noble knight if you'd like to get your hands on noble knight's loot head over to thetomeshow.com and click on the link in the show notes for this episode
2: and don't forget to tell them that the tome show sent you ha i got to do something to help out all right and we are back and we're gonna start off with sam iapane all right, that's, I, your, that's your new wrestler name. Eye of Pain, Sam. The Eye of Pain.
0: <laughs> so, Eye of Pain is a is a relatively interesting product. It is by Thomas M. Reed. It was produced for the second edition Advanced Dungeons and Dragons and published in 1996. So, a f- several years into the the second edition, there, I believe, if I remember right, it was released in ninety. Maybe 1991, can't remember. Uh, but somewhere around there. So this this is about five years into the production cycle. So they had a few uh, supplements and, and several books and whatnot under their belt. And the, and the edition was going along just fine. And this adventure is connected to a, a relatively, at the time, new kind of concept or new kind of set of books that they were calling the Monstrous Arcana. And what they did was they picked some iconic Dungeons & Dragons creatures, the elithids or mind flayers, the uh, beholders, etc., etc., And they wrote an informational book about that type of creature. And then they also wrote two or three different adventures focusing on that type of creature. So this particular piece of work here is written to be a sort of companion adventure to a book called I, Tyrant, which is unfortunately not available on dndclassics.com, but they have released the entire series of adventures. And the, the book I, Tyrant is not extremely necessary to run it, but it does help a little bit. I happen to have a, a paper copy of that um, just to give you that background so that you, you don't go looking for it. Um, this was written for uh, four to six characters, levels four to eight, um, back when this was written, they used to give you a a, a level total uh, that would give you an idea of the power level of your party, and that, and then you would be able to tell uh, if your party could handle this, if it would be challenging, and whatnot. And so, this is for characters of levels four to eight, and with an a, a total level of uh, thirty five. So it's for a pretty experienced party. Um, and basically, what happens is I'll just give a very brief synopsis. Um, there is a brood of beholders that is ruled by a a hive mother, and in that brood there is a particular elder beholder who wants to splinter off and and be his, run his own hive or run his own brood. Um, But he has to do that uh, in a way that doesn't anger the hive mother or so that she doesn't know for a while. Otherwise, she'll just kill him. So what he does is he decides that he's going to manipulate some uh, PCs into destroying the current hive queen so that he can take over. But in order to do that, of course, he has to make sure that he has picked a group of adventurers that is powerful enough, brave enough, and possibly stupid enough to attack a hive of beholders. And so that's sort of the premise to this. It's it's a three-adventure arc. This is only the first arc, and... Um, How ha- does a beholder hire adventurers without getting attacked on sight? Well, that's part of the adventure. Is that this particular beholder is a is a mage? Uh, certain types of different beholders can cast spells, and so this beholder can uh, disguise himself as a human, and that's indeed what he does. He decides disguises himself as a as a human mage who wants just who wants to go and. Uh, research beholders, and he finds himself another human as a sidekick, and they go on about hiring groups of adventurers to to raid this beholder lair okay um, and so that this adventure does some things very well. Um, it has a really cool little wilderness map um, that 's do- very well done, and the lair that that the party will attack at the at the climax of the adventure is a really interesting layer because it's a beholder layer so it's it has a interesting vertical structure it's not just your typical oh go in a dungeon and go down some stairs and find the next set of stairs and go down and find the next set of stairs and you know it's it's a pretty interesting uh structure so that's kind of cool um it also has some interesting npcs the adventure because it's the first in the arc it contains a little town called Burke's Crossing that it uh, details pretty well. And that that town has a few interesting NPCs. Um, Also, the way that the Beholder needs to manipulate uh, the adventuring party, uh, he doesn't just manipulate... Your group's adventuring party, he also manipulates a couple of other different NPC parties, and uh, the group has a run-in with one of those parties, and those NPCs become pretty interesting, and then they they meet them again later, and they can rescue them or kill them, spoiler alert. and so it does that really well. So it has rival NPC groups. Uh, and, and then um, it also, as I said, it utilizes that iTyrant book, which if you have that as a DM, it's really helpful, but it's not absolutely necessary. So that actually goes on my good and bad list, because if you have it, it can be really helpful. But if you don't have it, you might feel like you're missing it. And there is a, there are a couple parts in the book where it says for more information – see this other supplement, I tyrant. So that's not necessarily a great thing. Um the other interesting thing it does is that it is uh event based. So um when you go when the party gets to the town, it basically outlines here are all these, you know, five or six things or eight things or something like that that can happen, that can occur. And they can really occur in any different order as long as the first one happens first, of course. Um, and that's a pretty interesting way to do it. Uh, and so that goes on the things that are good list. On the other hand, um, it's not the best execution of an event based layout that I've ever seen. And the way that the events occur sort of lead to it being a little more linear. Um, the, the, re- the results or the consequences to each of the particular events kind of just lead to the next one. So I I'm choosing to view that as a good thing because it allows some flexibility for the DM. If if the DM wants to run or needs to run because of the different makeup of, of his group or her group, if they need to run it in a more linear fashion, this completely – you know, will allow that, and also if you run it a little more sandboxy, it allows that too, and and you can fiddle with the events a little bit. So I'm I'm seeing it as a good thing. It's sort of a good thing, but it's it's not the most well done that I've ever seen. There's also a couple of instances in here where the be, the beholder who has disguised himself. Um, Gives hints to the party in different ways. And and it's a kind of interesting the way that that occurs. And it has to do with beholder physiology, which I, as a biologist, I always find creature physiology really uh, interesting. Um, and so those are all the good things. And so there's uh, several good things. Um, there are some bad things, too. There's, you know, a lot of typos and um, lots of grammatical errors. And um, I often think, uh, you know, as I was reading it, there were a couple times when I thought, really, this thing got published with that, you know, horrible, grammatically incorrect, run on giant paragraph, long sentence. That's um, some of the comments I've seen about it online. Yeah. And, and really, um, if you can ignore that, which I have a hard time doing, but if you can, it's it's decent. Um, and um, like I said, the I Tyrant thing, it's a little bit simplistic. And I often, you know, I think my modern brain sort of sees and it, so this is this is sort of if you're reading this and you've only ever really played a lot of third or fourth edition my the, the modern gaming idea there sort of lends to um you know at the lower levels you're sort of helping the town at the sort of mid levels and later levels you're helping the entire region and at the upper levels you're helping you know the world maybe um and this is for a character some of the characters in your party might be 8th level and um it's a bit simplistic for an 8th level party you know in terms of the town that you go to and the and the events that occur in the town and and everything now you need them to be 8th level when they get to the beholder lair the beholder lair is is really interesting that you that you go to and they need to you know you have to be high level it's it's not as though it's just very simple and they can wipe out everything in fact i see a couple you know at least a a TPK in here for an unprepared party, um, but it, it it sort of has this weird me- mesh of a little bit simplistic, and then also, but on the other hand, you have to be have some eighth level characters because otherwise you're really going to get smooshed. Um, and there's one other thing, um, because the beholder is, is has disguised himself and he's trying to trick the players, and this the entire intent of his is to. Uh, see if they're strong enough so that he can send them through the sort of second part of, of the adventure arc. I really, I, I don't really like that premise. Um, it's, it sort of goes into that whole simplistic thing. If you have a a smart player or players been playing for a long time, they're going to probably figure that out real quick because what happens is when the party gets to the town, they can't find this wizard anywhere. And when sudden when these events start happening, a quick player is going to really say, "Okay, something weird is going on here," and that could turn out really good or it could turn out really bad. It All could right. turn out really good because it could make the the players really curious, and then and there's a, a, several red herrings in here that are built in, which is a good thing. And so it might really be played out really really herrings? well. What'd you say? What level of red herring? <laughs> they're, they- they're ninth level. You got to watch out; they'll hit <laughs> you. a <laughs> <laughs> um, red herring is pretty tough. Yeah.
3: Do you have the opportunity to find out that you are working for a beholder mage? Uh, uh, like, do, do the, is there an opportunity for the players to figure that out at this point in the adventure?
0: Um. Not until. Um, let's. Uh, you know, I don't really think so. I don't this is, but think, this
2: is the first part of a trilogy. It might
0: this come is, This is the first part of a trilogy. So if they figure it out – well, so I take that back. There actually is something built in. They he also um, the, the the evil elder beholder sets up his the dupe that he had the other human that he used as his sidekick and tries to get the party to kill him. And uh. um, if they don't kill him and they talk to him, he'll tell them and they'll figure out what happened. But they won't know uh. that why he's doing it. They'll only know that it was all a trick. So, so yes and no. So they can't find out the whole plot quite yet, but they can find out a, a great deal. But see, the thing is, finding out spurs them on to go fight him even more. Um, and then, of course, one of the other bad things, well, at least what I consider a bad thing that could turn out to be a good thing, is of course he escapes in the end. Right? He sends a different, you know, sort of undead beholder against them, and they get caught fighting that one, so he can escape. And so, you know, then there, of course, the idea there is, well, of course they're going to want to chase him and, you know, catch him to make him pay for what he did, but then, of course, then you're in the second adventure arc by that time and all that stuff. So um, so there, you know, in any case, there's some really good stuff. There's some really bad stuff. The cover art, I find to be horrific. I don't don't think it's (laughs) great. Um, On the other hand, the maps, uh, I like. I think they really work for what they're meant to be. And the interior art's not extremely horrible. It's It's fair. It's not awesome it's up to to
2: scratch for for the time period
0: yeah for the time period it's good but i i just the the covers of this series and in fact uh i've had this for a long time and never read it until uh jeff invited me to do the mini review and and i I wanted to pick something, obviously, that was on dndclassics.com, and I saw that it was, and I said, hey, that's the perfect opportunity for me to read this. And it's pretty decent. You know, when I look back and I say, well, this was 1996, you know, second edition had been out for about five years by this point, and they were doing this whole Monstrous Arcana thing, and, and you know, it, it's, it's pretty decent. It's not too bad. I don't know that it would translate well. I, I probably would not convert it into, like, 4th edition. Mm-hmm. I don't think it would work very well in 4th edition. It might work in 3rd edition, but I'm not sure. I think maybe 8th level, 3rd edition characters would be way too high. Um, but first City second, of Beholders, though? Well, but you don't go – not in this module, <laughs> no, right? Okay. So late, at the end of the arc, you'll be a higher level. than and yeah, and so, and that's one of the things is I think it starts out a little simplistic, and then as you go on, though, it's not as simplistic. But I, I'm not, of course, reviewing the other two parts of the trilogy, so there cool. you go. All right. Very so if I, if I had to give uh, a rating, I would say I don't want to give a number. It's, it's not the best thing I've ever read, but you know, it's, it's not too bad. It, it, I could work with it. I could definitely work with it. It's got a lot of good things, a lot of good ideas.
2: All right. Well, speaking of modules that have eyes in them, that have a patron that is not what they appear to be, I'm going to talk about Eyes of the Lich Queen. Uh, Eyes of the Lich Queen is a 3.5 Eberron module uh, published in 2007. Um, Written by Nicholas Logue, who uh, is a longtime friend of the show, although we haven't talked to him in a while. Stephen Schubert and Tim Hitchcock. Um, And Eyes of the Lich Queen is sort of your classic um, Indiana Jones D&D adventure. Like, I think it really epitomizes a lot of that aspect of Eberron really well. And, And in a way that I would have a hard time doing on my own. You know, in weaving sort of a relatively complex story, but bringing in all those elements. You know, it's got sort of the the crazy high flying fourth edition style locations. Um, You know, one of the. I actually uh, played part of this adventure as a player before I decided to to read it, and I think I'm going to run it later on. Um, and the most memorable um, scene to me, the most uh, or encounter location to me, was you are on platforms swinging on chains over a pit of lava while fighting yugoloths. You know? <laughs> and this, this is sort of the kind of location that you deal with. That, that at the same time feels like something that you know D and D Indiana Jones would totally be doing. <laughs> as um, as there's no snakes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't think I remember snakes unless you count the many dragons that appear, which in my mind is a strength in a Dungeons & Dragons adventure. <laughs> uh, and in fact, the patron that hires you in disguise is actually a dragon who is ha- who sends you out to... send you... sends the adventurers out to... Um, to recover artifacts there's this there 's this temple in the the jungles that you know back in thousands of years ago, during the age of demons was uh, a place where they were working on some sort of ultimate weapon to to destroy the dragons and Of course, the dragons don 't want that to get out, so they want the adventurers to go and, and check it out <clears throat> and then you get there and there are three niches, but only two of them have items, and you have, then you have to figure out where the where the third one is and along the way you you accidentally sort of pick up these aberrant dragon marks and you find out that p- adventurers had been there before and they got those same dragon marks and they died from them um, so you got to figure out what happened to the third item and solve this mystery in order to make sure that you know you don't die from these dragon marks and and you know obviously you assume that the other adventuring group got the the missing item and so you hunt down the tomb of the one who didn't who actually survived and um, there but you don't exactly know where to find the tomb because it's on this mysterious haunted island and so you you've got to find somebody who's got a good map and then find this uh this uh, the journal of this guy who actually re- led an expedition into it only part of the journal's missing and you find out one of his expedition mates tattooed that part onto his body so they could never go go back without him you know and, and you got to break him out of prison to to, <laughs> to get it all right i mean it's it's crazy stuff and that's only the first two out of four parts
1: um you know <laughs> So it sounds like, though, it sounds like it's pretty well tied to Eberron. It'd be kind of hard to to run it in another world because yeah, of the I dragon think, marks.
2: I think you'd have a hard time running it in another world in another world because um, the dragon marks are, are heavily tied to it. The, the, some of the history of Eberron is tied into it pretty well, and then it deals with um, it deals heavily with the draconic prophecy which is a very Ebron thing. And then your big enemy, your, your, um, the, the group that in my mind feel like the Nazis in an Indiana Jones story is the Emerald Claw, which is uh, really just sort of a puppet of the, the, the god, the blood of Vol, who's, who is the Lich Queen in the title, The Eyes of the Lich Queen.
1: So do they suggest you uh, run the NPCs with a German accent? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, they didn't, but that's not a bad idea so but yeah no
0: so, no offense to all of our uh, German and german-speaking absolutely fans not. absolutely not
2: but anyway yeah so the story is really big and and boisterous and, and it ends in this in this you know climactic battle under under three moons that have come together to form the sign of an eye and a magical orrery well well dragons and armies of barbarians are fighting below you and um you know and and, and you know it, it blows up in crazy ways um, the the only downsides, I would say, to the whole thing. Um, there is one. There was one moment um, where I told you about the mysterious island, and you have to get a map and figure out how to get there and follow the clues to, to get to where you need to go, and all that. Um, and they sort of suggest there's a little designer's note sidebar that says, "Hey, we would recommend that you um, that you draw a map that has these things on it and 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 you know mark that, and so then they can follow along with where they're going and what they're doing." I'm like, "Yeah, that'd be a great idea." Why didn't you do that? You wrote the adventure. (laughs) That sounds like a great map for you to have put in here for me to photocopy and hand to them. You know, Um, and then there are some other things that um, that come up fairly regularly that isn't great design and is going to require a pretty flexible DM. In that we've talked a lot, especially through the fourth edition days. Right, we talked about how failure. Should introduce complications, but not end the story. There are instances here where I feel like if I fail at one spot check and don't find the right spot to get onto the island, the story just ended. You know, mm. Or if I screw up one social interaction, then the DM is going to be thrown into completely uncharted territory that the book is not prepared to help you with at all. So so it does have some some issues there in the design in that it, it really needs you to stay on the rails and to make sure you hit the right checks. And I think it could have been done, especially in certain like part two when you're hunting down the parts of the map and all that kind of stuff, I feel like could have been very sandboxy. Hey, you've got these three different things you gotta check out, here's here's how you can do it and, and five different ways that you can accomplish each one of them and all that. And there are some places where that where they give you some options, right? Um the Prince Rhaegar on um, on this pi- pirate island has the map, right? He's he's one of the guys who's known for having very good maps. And you have some options. You can go and meet him at the bar and try to convince him to give you the map, or you can go and storm his boat and t- and steal it right and they give you some options on how to do that and that's good um but there's other places where it's like oh but then you went looking for the right place to to make you know landfall on that island and you screw up the spot check and i guess you just sail around some more you know <laughs> 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 so so i feel like there's places where they they really gave you good options and other places where
0: they where where they didn't give you those options and didn't give you the support they needed what um you said it's like four parts how do they start at first level or what's the
2: they start at fifth okay they start at fifth level it's supposed to go fifth through I want to say tenth okay um Mm -hmm. I think I have some I don't have that in front of me yeah but you start at fifth and I think you go up through tenth um and, I, and honestly, I, I'm excited about it. It's one of the better written adventures I've seen in a long time. Um, and so I'm excited to to dig into it some more. And I've got some ideas because I'm planning on, on converting it to fourth edition and trying to run that before uh, Next comes out. No, before Gen Con of next year anyway. Before I start uh... it.
3: I actually ran the adventure when I was in college. Did you? Um, and it is super fun. I, I, it really does capture that Eberron, you know, the Mummy, Indiana Jones mm-hmm. kind of feel, and it is so over the top. Um, and and you're right about the like failing a spot check and the adventure just comes to a screeching halt. Right. Um, but as DM, it's pretty easy to wave some of that stuff away. But it's awesome. I love the adventure.
2: Sweet. Well, I'm looking forward. To- I know. I know when I played. Like we played part one of it, mm-hmm. and, I, and I loved it. And then the DM's like, okay, well, we finished part one. I'm going to take a break. Jeff, you DM for a while. Uh, and then when you're ready for a break, we'll switch back and we'll do part two. And I'm like, well, oh, that sounds great. And then while I was DMing, this guy had to bow out and quit the group. <laughs> so oh, we gosh. never got back to it. It's like, ah, what <laughs> happens? <laughs> so. jeez. Oh, geez. But anyway. And the, that,
3: uh, yeah. the black dragon encounter in that first part is really uh, like a clever trick and interesting, I think.
2: Oh, popping in and out of the holes.
3: Yeah, 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 no, so and the this, fact, uh, the fact that there's two of them and they're twins, and you mm-hmm. don't know, yeah,
2: yeah, right. no, absolutely, and and that's that's what that's part of what I'm talking about when I say that there there's some great encounter design, um, there and some of the locations and encounter design ideas that I think takes the best of what became fourth edition.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, absolutely. All right. So I'm sensing a thread so far. So in in Sam's adventure, we had a beholder uh, polymorphed into a human and. Yours, we had.
2: We have a dragon, a dragon, a dragon yeah. as a
1: human. So James, <laughs> do you?
2: Well, see, so so we transitioned from Eye of Pain to Eyes of the Lich Queen, and now we'll follow the theme of undead with my Lich Queen into James's I nine, I nine, I six, I six, I six Ravenloft.
3: Yes, and uh, what drew me to this adventure was it's a, a Ravenloft adventure, and I've never played anything related to the campaign setting or to these adventures in uh, first edition, and I've never actually played a first edition game. Um, so I wanted to check that out. I've read a lot about both, uh, but I don't have any actual play experience with either so i thought it would be a great idea to check out this module and see what i thought of it uh and i really enjoyed it it was um written uh in 1983 by a husband and wife uh couple tracy and laura hickman yeah, you, you, and may, you may know
2: half of that group as or uh, as one of the people responsible for Dragonlance.
3: Yes. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Tracy had a huge hand in that, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and they uh, uh, apparently the background of the adventure is kind of that, um, uh, which is similar to the way I think a lot of people feel today. Uh, Tracy was not happy with what had become of vampires. Um, that uh, he felt that they needed to sort of get back to their original creepy, scary, terrifying, horror, gothic roots. And uh, so he wrote this adventure, which feels very much like Dracula, the D&D experience. Oh, it
2: absolutely is designed that way, right?
3: Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. And... Uh, just to give a little sort of walkthrough, it's, you know, you are mysteriously summoned uh, to this kingdom and once you enter... You cannot leave without dying unless you kill the vampire lord who is terrorizing all of the citizens. Um, so it does feel very uh sort of constricted once you get in there. Um, you breathe in the mists and you can't leave without dying. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an adventure for six to eight PCs, which I thought was pretty exciting. That's uh, quite a bit of people. Uh, quite a few.
0: Well, uh, so just to... That's pretty standard in in first edition D and D. So you you would have a, you, a minimum of six PCs, sometimes up to ten or twelve, mm. actually. So so that's oh, that's wow. pretty yeah. So that that's not like specific to that adventure. Just to let you know, that's a a pretty common. Uh, Just like mine, mine for second edition was, you know, levels four to eight, but total levels 35. So you can actually have, like, seven fourth-level characters or, you know, three fifth-level characters. And, yeah, so that's why they do that because it's – uh, you know, in those older editions, everybody didn't level at the same time. So you, you'll have a thief who's fourth level, but you might have a magic user who's still only first level because it takes them a lot longer. And the fighter might be, you know, second level. And so that's right. why that's that's like that. So yeah. oh wow, the, the party's much more of a motley crew. So you need a whole bunch of people. <laughs> mm-hmm.
3: Yes. Yeah. Well, and I think the adventure. Uh, is is written in such a way? There's some really specific things in the adventure, like you must have a fighter with a longsword is one of the things that it says uh, mm-hmm. you, you have to have, um, you know, and you can't l- try to leave without dying, that kind of thing. But then there's also all of these uh, modular pieces that change. Um, and I thought that was one of the big strengths of the adventure is this Fortunes of Ravenloft mm-hmm. uh, thing where you have gypsies do a card reading for the party and... The card reading determines not only where specific things are going to be in Castle Ravenloft, which is this enormous sprawling dungeon, uh, where you find the vampire lord, Strahd, who is, uh, running everything. But the card reading also determines what his motivation is for the adventure. And it can be everything from he's trying to make a woman fall in love with him, uh, to he's trying to leave, uh, his lands and go spread his influence across the rest of the world, and what hes his plan is to switch places with one of the adventurers in the party, and then leave with the party uh, and you know spread his influence throughout the rest of the mm. world um, and I thought that that was kind of cool that there were these different motivations that could be driving your villain, uh, so it sort of made the module seem like it could be. Uh, Not wholly replayable, because obviously there's a lot of things that are going to be the same. But it did make it seem like, oh, if you heard about one person's game, you could have an entirely different experience over here.
2: And I actually, for a long time, I I ran this adventure every single year around Halloween. This is my go-to Halloween adventure. And and so then it would be a little bit different every year. But then I would also make notes in it of what happened each year. and then change the module you know if if somebody in the previous year uh knocked over a statue then then when they come back came back for the next year that statue would be partially broken and have cracks all over it and things you know and i i would tweak little things here and there to to indicate what had changed after um after each group went through
3: yeah and that's exactly how I feel like I would want to run it if mm-hmm. I was going to do this about how long did it take you Jeff when you were
2: um, I usually abbreviated the story and, and tried to jump straight to the to the castle you know um because gotcha. I did it every year so I, we'd do it in in two uh, two maybe three um decently long sessions
3: yeah yeah it seems like it's it's uh you know super playable and I do think that's I do think one of the weaknesses is sort of in the beginning you're in this town and everybody's shut in into their cabins and they're not really saying anything and there's kind of a few select npcs you have to find who will set everything in motion and then take you to the castle and then essentially it is an enormous dungeon crawl uh after that um with a lot of devious traps and a lot of really cool horror gothic flavor. I think if you're a horror fan, there's a lot of interesting spins on the tropes, and it's um, one of the other things that's cool about it, I think, is that not all of the illusions and stuff within the castle aren't necessarily, oh, magic. That's the reason this happened. Mm -hmm. They have some specific sort of technical, mechanical things that are happening, which are also it's really neat to see that that they're not just relying on like, oh well
2: it was magic. So And they they also they also play up on the fact that that the villain Strahd is also like brilliant as well. You know, they they give you little hints like if you're If you're in this part of the castle and and one of the the PCs looks out the window, um, Mm -hmm. you know, Strahd is there and dominates them and then runs off, you know, and doesn't, you know. So nobody knows now you've got a dominated PC in the party that's actually working for Strahd the whole time.
3: Exactly. Yeah, he seems really devious, and I love the way that he appears to the party multiple times Mm -hmm. throughout the adventure. So you're not just, it's not just a guy you've heard about and then... Uh, you know eventually you find him and and face him there are multiple times you face off with this guy and depending on what his motivations are he may interact with the party differently and uh, try to manipulate them in very specific ways to get them to turn against each other or to give him something that they have uh, that he wants you know all that kind of stuff and then there is a great um there's sort of a great twist at the end there's an optional ending within there that i thought was kind of a really nice twist to you find out a little bit about strad's past mm-hmm. uh when before he was a vampire and the twist ending kind of relates to that past life as you you know restore the lands of uh bavoria yeah barovia yeah uh and, uh, and, and everything comes back. So, you know, all in all, I thought it was, uh, it was a pretty great adventure. There's a lot of fun. It looked like there's a lot of fun NPCs for a DM to play. Uh, you know, like, uh, Leaf Lip Siege is this, you know, um, despondent accountant who, uh, who is working for Strahd. Yeah. <laughs> uh, who you interact with. And if the PCs are nice to him, uh, you know, he can give them some tips. Uh, there's, uh, you know, crazy maids who, Uh, act like they're going to help the party and then try to get one of the PCs alone and they're actually a vampire and they suck his blood, you know, all that kind of Mm -hmm. stuff. So it's got a lot of fun horror elements and it definitely has that vampiric flavor. Um, And I think for the most part, you know, it's an older adventure, but I think for the most part, it holds up really well. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's a few things that it might seem like, oh, this is very tropey now to us, um, but I think that's part of the fun of the adventure. And I think if you're playing this module, that's what you're expecting. You're expecting to see lots of wolves and golems and uh, gargoyles and things like that running around. Uh, so um, and there's a great uh, there's some great comedy with zombies in a cauldron at one point. So <laughs> you know doesn't doesn't get any better than that. So I would say uh, all in all, I'm pretty excited. I think I want to try to run this as, uh, using the, the play test rules, um, and, uh, and see how that goes. So yeah,
2: in a uh, lot of ways, I, I feel like, like this adventure is, is almost sandboxy in a way that al- almost is, is very seldom pulled off anymore. You know? Oh yeah. I mean, you're, you're basically just told you, you draw the cards and you're told, well, this is where he is. Now you figure out how to get there. Go. You know, there's a huge dungeon. He's, he, you know what room he's in, but you have no idea where that room is, you know? <laughs> go find him. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I I totally agree. I think that's one of the huge strengths of the adventure is that, that modularity and that it, the onus really is on the players to sort of figure out what to do next. And there's enough places to go that if you're stuck, you can say, Ah, oh, well, let's... Try walking out onto the roof or going down this hallway or whatever and, you know, they might find something useful or they might find something dangerous. But, uh, you know, it's the, the castle is interconnected enough that mm-hmm. um, you can not go down one hallway and go down another and still make it into the same place eventually. Uh, so all in all, I thought it was you know I thought it was a great adventure. I think it does give that sandbox feel, which is great. The maps and everything are very clear. Um, oh, yeah, I the love, art I love seems... the maps.
2: The maps are some of the best maps uh, uh, for that edition, and probably the next two or three.
3: Oh yeah, absolutely yeah, and it's super. It would be easily um, confusing with the number. You know, there's over. 80 rooms in the dungeon. So they uh, figured out a way to
2: sort of give a a 2d slash 3d map that, that really makes it clear.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It looks like an old incredible cross sections Mm -hmm. book um, of a castle. And it's great. Uh, You know, and the, uh, the, all of the maps are, were very helpful. I was referring to them the whole time. Um, I think there is one story inconsistency that bothers me, which is, that no one can leave because they're breathing in the mists, but uh, how are the messengers then leaving the land <laughs> to contact the adventurers? That's the only sort of uh, the like glaring story thing that that stuck out to me. But you know, if it's what kicks it all in motion, maybe yeah.
2: um, You know, I think they worried s- a little bit less about hooks back then and just wanted to jump straight to the adventure.
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and what's very interesting is, and Sam, maybe you can tell me if this is reminiscent of first edition adventures, too. The flavor text often tells characters not only what they're seeing and sensing but also what they're feeling at the time. Like, the first block of flavor text is all about how how boring and dull it is to uh, have downtime when you're an adventurer. And, uh, you know, um, and and it struck me as very interesting because it seems like a lot of modern flavor text doesn't tell the players how to feel. Um, mm. You know, it tells them what they're sensing and stuff.
0: Yeah, that, that's not actually typical um that it's typical of a ravenloft right. i mean that so that i mean I mean that that sounds stupid to say that now, but realize that when when that came out, that was the first Ravenloft, and you know the reason why you read that and you go, oh look at all these tropes, it's because that's the thing that was the first one for so many things, right. and now everybody tried to build on that so much so that it's a trope now. Um, but the but you know in second edition Ravenloft was a whole different setting, so it had two or three box sets and it had all kinds of different mm-hmm. modules and different supplements and stuff. So so that sort of became part of when you did those things. And actually um, you the about the how the mist part spiral. made yeah. more sense in the setting mm mm-hmm. mhm yeah. yeah 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 and so so to answer your question it's not typical of all first edition things but it is typical of ravenloft style modules oh yeah so and part of that you know part of that's the brilliance of what what Tracy and Laura did because yeah, they, and that, they, they mean, put you that right makes... into it you know it wasn't like you know generally and, and like Jeff said most of the time you know when you start you know a lot of first edition modules is basically here's two paragraphs of background and boom you're at this you know you're at the entrance to the dungeon or whatever mm-hmm. and <laughs> so you didn't need like you, you relied on going into the dungeon to give you the feeling of oh we're on a dungeon crawl or oh we're on a wilderness crawl or whatever but in Ravenloft it was it was all new at the time it was okay what's going to tell the players exactly how they're feeling and why this makes sense well i guess we're gonna have to tell them exactly why it makes sense in terms of their feelings so yeah
3: yeah i just i i actually i liked it it didn't it wasn't so intrusive like now you mm-hmm. feel this way now you feel this. Oh, way. oh yeah but yeah no it's tone, yeah, yeah you know it was yeah nice.
0: exactly it set the tone
2: exactly well, and especially because he's trying to catch or capture sort of a, a horror movie right
0: feel. A very a, a very gothic feel yeah. is there and it comes yeah. across very well you have to, I like you, you have to play to
2: the emotions if you're going to do horror, right? Mm-hmm.
1: I like the fact that it it, it plays to those tropes rather mm-hmm. than say the constant Cthulhu type horror mm-hmm. that everyone tries ah, yes. to take. That it, yeah, but that, yeah. the
2: Cthulhu thing wasn't wasn't really a thing back then, right? I'll call it Cthulhu was around. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, but it, had, it hadn't it hadn't invaded D anD D so to speak at that point. That's true. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I do. I mean, I,
3: I love all that stuff, and I I love that uh, it just seems so appropriate that story that he was trying to sort of reinvent vampires and and make them interesting again um i feel like kind of applies now in the twilight era uh no offense to anyone who is a huge twilight fan or well, it's, it's anything funny, but it's I, funny
2: you say that tracy hickman actually has or at least he had i, I haven't caught it in a while uh, a podcast of his own and one of the when twilight was you know sort of at its pinnacle he did a whole rant on how horrible he thinks twilight is <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah
3: yeah yeah i think we would get along then because yeah. uh I'm not into my shiny vampires are not a good thing for me. Right. Um, So I love that. And I love there was another story I came across when I was just doing some research, which was that he ran this uh, module for his adventure group. And they didn't want to kill Strahd because when they found out how terrible his background was and, you know, the things that led him to be a vampire they felt so bad for him that they had a tough time actually uh, you know destroying him at the end of all things um, so I thought that you know it's good that he was able to bring some compassion to a pretty horrible person
2: <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah well and that uh, and that, um, that, that forces a, a really interesting um, decision making point that oftentimes doesn't get to happen in, in d d
3: yeah, absolutely. I, I like that he's not just evil for evil's sake. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it, it definitely helps when the bad guy doesn't think of himself as evil.
0: Well, and you know when that came out that that little motivation table for the you know for the card reading and stuff that's like mind blowing. That oh. thing because and it's been emulated so many times since now now it's like oh yeah okay whatever and you know it's kind of standard fare to say oh when I'm prepping my my session that I'm going to run I'm looking at motivations of villains and all that and certain NPCs you know. But back then it was like, oh yeah, it's kind of a hand wavy. Oh, you roll on the reaction table, and so you don't have to think about it beforehand because you're you're just going to learn through the reaction <laughs> because of the game mechanics. And so putting that in the table and saying, okay, well here is his motivation, and the fact that that could change, you know, that that was like. A Fantastic bit of, mm-hmm. you know, here I'm playing with the system. It's not a different game. But look, I've tweaked it just a tiny bit. And look what it's done for you. It's it's made this so that you could actually play this same thing several times and have a different outcome or, or a different impetus for all the stuff going on. I mean, that's that was mind blowing at the time. Now it's, you know it's to t- now, if it, you don't have that in a in a published product, people are like, "How come you didn't do that but <laughs> back then it was you know well, that's not heard of you The most you get is a little background telling you why the villain is doing whatever, but there's really no you know no way to talk about that as a motivation or integrate it into the story necessarily other than what's written.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, definitely my favorite part of the adventure, too, was like, whoa, this is so, I didn't know this was a part of this. This is so cool. So, um, you know, I I was happy to see that. And that really made me want to run the adventure. I like the idea of doing it as a Halloween tradition, Jeff. I think that makes it really fun. Cool. Mm All
2: right. Well, I look forward to hearing how that goes. So from Beholder City to Eberron to Ravenloft, we're now headed off to uh, Greyhawk.
1: Jay, it is. Tell yeah. us
2: about Against the Cult of the Reptile God.
1: Well, actually, before I launch into mine, I just wanted to make one comment about Okay, the, never mind. Let's go
2: back to Ravenloft. <laughs> <laughs> we can't well, get out. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: well, the deadly mist that surrounds this podcast. So, um, Basically, the interesting thing, I, I've actually never played Ravenloft, which is much uh, chagrin. I, I've actually played with Tracy Hickman in other adventures that he has run, but never actually played Ravenloft, much to my own chagrin. But one thing I love about that adventure um, so much is that it, uh, so in the early 2000s, they got a bunch of the game designers uh, together and ranked all the D&D modules that had come out. And that Ravenloft came up as number two. Uh, it was second only to basically the G through GDQ series that was um, Gary Gygax in the early 80s came out mm-hmm. with. Or I guess it was mid '80s, but yeah. So Ravenloft is is very well recognized for its contributions to you know adventure and things like that. That of, of course are you know now so commonplace, but it was v- really very a seminal work in in adventure design at its time. Going back to uh, the N one, so I, I guess the the first thing is that um, N one is very old. It's older, much older than even. Um, Ravenloft. It, it was published in 82, I think. 82, yep. And it was done by Douglas Niles. It was his first adventure, which, you know, Douglas Niles for uh, grognards like myself, uh, mm-hmm. a very familiar name, but uh, this is way back when. This was his first product. Ironically, it's uh, the the letter number combo is N1, which the N was supposed to be for novice DMs, but if you've read through this, this, I wouldn't really say this is a an adventure for a novice DM. The reason being is is that whereas, you know, we talked about Ravenloft and all the wonderful things it introduced, uh, the N1 actually introduces a, its own set of unique things for their time. The first being is, you know, really a fully fleshed out town. Um, I don't know if it was the first adventure with this, but it is one of the first um, right up there with like uh, Village of Homeless. I was going to say that that was the first true town based yeah well yeah homlet of course is all about the town Mm -hmm. you know there's like the little moat house and things like that you can do some stuff in but it's purely introductory into of course the big temple of elemental evil N one has all three elements that, like you know, they talk about. Mike Mike Merles talked about his, uh, you know, the three pillars of adventure mm-hmm. gaming and yeah. things like. that. And this really has all three of those. It's got a fully fleshed out town. It has a wilderness with exploration, and of course, it has a dungeon at the very end. So, I mean, it if you were to read it now, it, you probably be like, oh yeah, it's 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 interesting. It really uh, is. It's interesting to me because I played this back in eighty two, eighty three with some friends. I was I don't know what twelve, thirteen. It was one of the first adventures we played, which is why I picked it. And at the time, I didn't really think anything of it. It wasn't until I went back and played earlier adventures I was like really began to appreciate what was in this particular adventure. Now the first thing is of course it's very short compared to the all the other modules that we've reviewed. This only has twenty-eight pages. Um, on dndclassics.com. Uh, dot it's a, actually the PDF is the exact same price I paid for it back in eighty one four ninety nine. So, <laughs> nice, so, I guess you know. so much for infla- inflation of uh, adventure D and D adventures. But uh, you know, it, it's it starts out the uh, the village of Orlaine, um True to form, uh, it starts off, there's not a great impetus or, or, or motivation to get the characters to go other than it starts, A group of inexperienced but courageous adventurers has become aware of the change in Orlane through some vague rumors that they have heard circulating around Hawkuk. Which I guess that's I don't know how you say that other town. And then it gives you a table of rumors that you can hear, which of course then, you know, it starts off and we were talking about box text because there is plenty of box text mm. in this in this adventure.
2: In in a twenty eight page adventure like that, I figured they would they wouldn't have
1: very much of that. You know, it's it it actually does a fair amount. There I mean the town itself is over half the adventure. The dungeons are fairly small. Um the the town fills up let's see I'm going through it here, so I'm on page fourteen uh yeah, it goes through about fifteen so fifteen of the fifteen of the twenty eight pages devoted to the town that includes maps for um several of the buildings because the buildings, unlike uh, in many adventures uh they're actually instrumental to the to the adventure. One of the great things is this was one of the first adventures that had proactive enemies, whereas a lot of adventures prior to this, you know, the the adventures were the, the enemies were static. They sat in the dungeon twiddling their thumbs until someone came to stick a sword in them. They or stayed blown. in their
2: monster closet.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So until they were blown up with a fireball or had a sword stuck in them, actually, you know, these guys actually go out and do things. You know, they react to the, to the PCs. Uh, there's, um, As you can imagine, there's a cult in the town from the title of the adventure, and they don't just stand idly by as you go about with your uh, investigations and things like that. Um, in fact, and, and one nice thing is that if, you, if, a, if your group of players happens to be uh, perhaps not as inquisitive or is not really getting into the adventure, the enemies are proactive enough where they sort of start things on their own and it, like I said, it goes pretty quick. You could play this adventure in probably two or three sittings. Um, and it's it's, rel- it's low level. It's one to three. Uh, it's for four to seven adventures. It's, of course, first edition. Um, so, you know, we were talking about the number of characters and things like mm-hmm. that. Uh, Required. It's a small adventure, but it's really easy, really straightforward, but it has a lot of flavor to it, you might say. And being so old, that's one of the things I really enjoyed about it was it introduced me to... It's not exactly what you'd say, event-driven, like a a lot of uh, adventures are. Um, The B6 and some other ones that came out afterwards were more in that flavor, but this one... Uh, has lots of it, it is very sandboxy by the nature of the villains and what you can do with it and uh, as I mentioned, despite it being called the end it really is, i wouldn 't really suggest it for a, a beginning dm maybe a novice, but I would probably say intermediate. Certainly doesn't wouldn't require someone with thirty years of experience to run, but it you know it definitely would require someone who is able, you know, wants to put together um, plot lines and things like that and kind of see the bigger picture and maybe maybe tie their characters' histories into it and things like that. So. But yeah, otherwise pretty straightforward. Of course, the big villain. Uh, there's no dragons, no vampires, no beholders. This one just happens to be a lowly spirit naga <laughs> that uh, happens to be charming people and sending them back uh, to fetch more people to use as you know slaves and food and things like that. And it's it's managed to ensnare a, a band of troglodytes to do its whim. And the troglodytes, of course, will come into the town and uh, confront the party if uh, you know if it turns out the party becomes a little too inquisitive or. Uh, Things like that. So yeah, it's it's pretty nice. The the wilderness part is uh, pretty straightforward. Yeah, it's point A to point B, but there's some interesting um, interesting opponents along the way, a dragon turtle, and um, but otherwise, you know the the dungeons themselves are fairly small. They you know they basically sit under the swamp. You go through through from room to room. Um, there are uh, opportunities for role-playing and things like that within the dungeon itself. The Naga has managed to take prisoners, and you could uh, manage to free them and start a mini-riot and things like that if you wanted to as well. But overall, considering it's so small, it jams. it's jammed packed full of great uh, adventure seeds and things like that. Um, that's a, that's
2: a theme I've noticed of first edition, edition adventures is somehow mm-hmm. they managed to tell the story that we're used to seeing in 200 pages in less than 30
0: well, so I was actually going to say, you know, so Eye of Pain that I reviewed is is 32 pages, but the font is like, <laughs> you know, 12-point 12, 12 font, because by the time 2nd Edition came out, they sort of had more formatting tools and whatnot. But, you know, if I were to go open up my 1st Edition modules, mm-hmm. they're all like, you know, 9-point font shoved together, two-column yeah. As, much as, as, yeah. as, you, oh, as much as you can on as little as you can much as you can yeah quarter inch margins yeah uh, quarter inch margins the biggest artwork it's either a whole page or it's a you know little eighth of a page whatever Stat blocks are two lines right yeah, so, yeah. very much yeah, so yeah exactly i mean you you can you can shove a lot in there in 28 pages i mean and and that's part of the reason um that i think Eye of pain feels a little simplistic to me cuz even though it's short you know in that same 32 pages you know, in, say, for example, well, in N1 in or or even even in T1, the village of Homlet, where it really is, you're right, it's just a town, but there's a little moat house with, you know, 15 rooms or whatever. And there's some, you know, they outline all the people or whatever. But there's so much in there that I could do if I wanted to make that a home base. Whereas this Eye of Pain in 32 pages, which is, you know, three or four pages more, yeah, it has some interesting people but it's nowhere near the amount of packed, you know, full of information, just chock full, as the first edition modules were. Yeah, It's, a, it's a really very striking difference. Mm. Well, what's interesting about,
1: you know, and this is reminiscent of this adventure in particular, but first edition modules have this characteristic more, is they're easier to pick up and just and run. In fact, the mm-hmm. uh, reason I picked this up is uh, we were trying out Fate Accelerated and needed an adventure, and so I went to my stash of D&D modules sitting on my uh, shelf here, and I pulled this one out, and I was like, hell oh, yeah, I remember this one, this is great, and so I thumbed through it, I was able to read through it in, you know, uh, uh, an hour or so, but of course, with, like you said, the the, the, uh, the signal, uh, I guess the the information ratio is very high in the in the small amount of pages sam so right. it, it's great but because the stat blocks are so small and everything like that it's very easy to run on the fly it doesn't take a lot of conversion things like that the other thing i love is you know i just i mean being the age i am and having started playing D when i did i just love the look of the old school and unfortunately the interior artist is not credited that's I was looking for. That I, I love the pictures. I know that uh, he or she did lots of uh, the other TSR modules, so it's certainly not unique. But you know, it really is. It's great interior art. I mean, the 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 opening segment. As you know, you turn to the you turn to the the first page in the town. You know, it's got a, the four adventurers all dressed in their first level garb. You know, they look like they're farmers straight off the town with a you know shield and sword and crossbow, and the dwarf sitting on the. On the stump as they're about ready to go into town, you know. Just I don't know. It evokes so many, so many of these, you know, beginning adventures. Let's, you know, this this would be a perfect adventure to start a campaign with. Um, I could see this plants, you know, you can easily wrap it up, but it has lots of seeds that it could be planted.
0: Can I can I say one other thing too? And uh, this is, uh, you know, it's it's very common nowadays, and, and I do it too, so I'm I'm not bagging on anybody, but it's very common for gamers nowadays to really complain about boxed text and, um <laughs> you know, like in in eye of pain there there's a lot of boxed text as well um but the thing is that the reason that boxed text was there was so that you could just. You know, skim through it really quick, and then you could actually run that at the table without having read it extremely deeply. Now, of course, mm-hmm. you're probably going to run it a lot better if you've read it previously. But, but the, that box text was was there for a very specific reason. And people nowadays are like, "Oh, you know, that's so, it's so yesterday," you know. But it really did serve a purpose, and it, it's a purpose that's kind of been lost nowadays because now with better formatting and bigger you know longer books and all that now now box text is way too long you know and it and but you know the box text in these older adventures in a lot of cases it's just the right amount of information and that's by design and it's so that you could just open it up whereas nowadays it doesn't really work like that
1: well that's you know that's true because Prior to these adventures with box text, they didn't have box Mm text, and too many of the GMs would just read the encounter. You know, and behind the stone pillar are three acolytes of hit die three, and Mm -hmm. (laughs) they put that in there to kind of make it a little easier. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you have to think that that's
3: the most fun for the game designer to write like you know they're writing all this technical stuff and they're like ah finally that's where they get to be the dm for a little bit mm-hmm. too you know um so i I know it's helped me out when I have not had a lot of time to prepare for
2: an adventure and and so you know I've done I found a a site here that did a little bit of research uh it looks like Tim Truman who did the cover did most of the interior art um and then there were couple of other guys that worked on it jim holloway worked on it as well and then steve sullivan no harry quinn did the um the back cover art so there's your artists
1: interesting thanks for looking that up
2: there you go <laughs> uh, i i was wondering so how um how easy now you ran this and you said fate accelerated recently how easy would this be to convert to other editions of D d do you think you
1: know, I, I can't speak for second because I never played for second. Um, third, you know, the, the interesting thing, of course, is is in going to any other edition of D&D, what you're doing is you're extrapolating because there's more information available in, uh, you know, first edition is very slim, whereas uh, second, third, and, and fourth in particular, the characters are quite beefier, and so you'd have to beef up the NPCs. However, that much said... Really, I think you'd just be a swap, you know. Especially with fourth, where you just, you know, you go to the compendium. I need a Naga, you know. You just look up Naga in the compendium. You pick the one that's appropriate level that you want. Done. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it would be very hard at all. It's it's a fairly slim adventure, like I said. There's not a lot of suppositions about the people that you're or you know, the the NPCs or the or the monsters that would make it so that you couldn't just use their whatever equivalents in any edition of D anD. D
0: it, and you would have to do very, very, very little to get it to second edition. I mean, there's really not. Oh, yeah. I
2: ran a lot of first, F- first and modules.
0: second are so close. Yeah, yeah it's not even. Wor- and in fact, I've run first and second edition modules with D&D Next, and it works pretty flawlessly. Pretty
2: flawlessly, too. Yeah. 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 Cool. Well, already then, we've looked, or Sam's told us about Eye of Pain from 2nd Edition, I talked about Eyes of the Lich Queen from 3.5, uh, James told us about 1st Edition Ravenloft, and Jay told us about 1st Edition uh, Against the Cult of the Reptile God. Did I keep, did I get it right every time? Yeah, you got it. Awesome. Perfect. Uh, And that's the end of the episode. I want to say thank you to our our sponsor, Noble Knight Games, as well as our guests. I want to thank Sam for filling in for Tracy. Thank you, sir. Welcome. And, of course, thanks for all the editing work that you do that helps make the show possible. (laughs) Um, I also want to thank Jay. Do you want to let anybody know where they can find you on the interwebs?
1: Sure. I'm uh, icosahedron or at icosahedron on Twitter. Also, I have a blog for gaming at expertisedice.com. And I also have a technical blog if you're into software development at all. It's at flagrantsystemair.com if that's your thing as well.
2: Very cool. And James Intercaso. Yes, uh,
3: you can find me um, at uh, jamesintrocaso on Twitter. Or you can find me on my blog, which is worldbuilderblog.me. Or you can find me in the Tome Show feed. Uh, My podcast is called The Roundtable, and Jeff is very nice to host us.
2: It's my favorite new podcast. Ah, Thank you. And I also want to thank all of our listeners, not only for listening, but for also supporting us by going out to Amazon and D&D Classics through the links on the website when you do your shopping. If you heard anything here that got you excited, you want to go out and get the PDF. Go through our website, click on the link uh, in the show notes, and we get a little tiny bit of of all of those. So uh, if you want to contact the show, you can email us at thetomeshow at gmail.com or call the biz line at 919-BizTome. That's 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. Show notes will be and other great Tome Show shows like The Roundtable can be found over at thetomeshow.com.
0: And that is episode 232, where we took the shotgun approach to reviewing PDFs. We hit as many targets as we possibly could in one shot. In this episode of...
1: I'm on the wall.